Well, good morning. How many of you think that Elvis is still alive? That was the question, you're laughing. That was the question asked by a very serious documentary in 1991 that was hosted by none other than that time's incredible Hulk, Bill Bixby. They shared evidence to the fact that Elvis' death was really a carefully crafted ruse to allow him to get into some sort of protective custody that he one day would return. The evidence was shared, the audience was polled, the verdict was clear. 79% of the viewers said, yes, we believe Elvis is still alive. One of the experts interviewed for the documentary proclaimed that soon, now remember this was over 30 years ago, soon Elvis would return to become a spiritual leader. Not sure how many of you are still awaiting the imminent return of the king to be our spiritual leader, but it does kind of promote the question, how do you know what you can be confident in? Because Jesus came and he said, I am the truth. Jesus came and he called us to be confident in him. He said, he said um, I'm the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, even if you die, yet will you live. And many of us in this place would vote heartily vote, yes, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God who lived a perfect life and who died a substitutionary death for us on the cross, who conquered death on the third day, will one day return, who started the church, who gave us the Holy Spirit, and we are banking our eternal destination on that. We believe the eyewitnesses who not only saw him but ate with him and questioned him and touched him. One who believed such was a man by the name of Paul. Paul did not always believe when he was younger. He was a Pharisee who sought to kill the church, destroy the church. But one day he encountered Jesus face to face and everything changed. He became the builder of the church, one of the primary leaders of the church, writer of more than half the New Testament. And he would write things like this in Romans chapter 1, verse 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everybody who believes. I love that language because in the Greek, the Apostle Paul is trying to find the strongest possible language to say, I am confident that the good news of Jesus Christ brings salvation. Now, we always think in terms of spiritual salvation, and it does, but it means to make things whole. That Jesus Christ, the good news of Jesus, makes things whole wherever it goes when people believe. My goal this Easter is for you to share Paul's confidence, how my life, how your life might be changed if we really had the confidence in the good news of Jesus that it deserves, that he deserves. It's easy for us to lack confidence. Popularity of Christianity, biblical Christianity is at an all-time low. I have a friend who's doing missionary work right now in France. He said, he sent me a text this past week, said in France, five-tenths of a percent of the French population claims to believe in biblical Christianity. It's hard to believe when there are other hoaxes out there that so many people believe. I mean, is believing in Jesus is alive kind of like believing Elvis is alive? 
And what do you do with all of the, all of the, the um, mocking that Christianity receives? Atheists will say things like religion ruins everything. Remember the Crusades. How can you be confident in the church? Because you remember the Crusades and what Christianity has done for evil in the world. And when powerful voices from Hollywood, their education, or the media elites habitually mock and berate Christianity in the church, it's easy to lose your confidence, especially if you're young and you have not been well educated or have not had much life experience. This Easter season, I want you to know that Jesus Christ is alive and you have every reason to be absolutely confident that the good news of Jesus brings salvation and everyone everywhere needs it. Now in the next couple of weeks, we're going to talk about on a personal level, the good news of Jesus changes everything. Today I want to talk on a historic, with a historic perspective. You know, we have more reason to have confidence in the good news of Jesus Christ than the Apostle Paul did. Because we have 2,000 years of evidence that wherever the good news of Jesus Christ goes and is believed and is applied, he changes everything. H.G. Wells said, I am an historian. I am not a believer. But I must confess, as a historian, that this penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ is easily the most dominant figure in all of history. It is important for us to go through some of this stuff that I have to share today because we have people who are rewriting history and denying the truth of history because they have their own agendas to deceive. But I want you to leave this place emboldened. No more timidity. No more insecurity about Christianity. No more apologetic attitude toward the church but a sense of confidence that Jesus Christ is the power that brings salvation wherever he is believed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would speak right now, that we would hear what you would have to say, that we would be inspired by you, um, that we would give you the confidence that you deserve and we would settle for nothing less than what you deserve. Through Christ I pray, amen. See, we can be confident in the good news of Jesus Christ because it brings salvation in terms of people's attitudes toward each other and the way we treat each other. We talk a lot about human rights today. People didn't talk about human rights when Jesus was born Sociologist Dr. Alvin Schmidt notes that the teaching of Jesus challenged almost everything for which the Roman world stood. And he challenged, for instance, the Roman world's view of women. Throughout most of history, women were not seen with dignity. They were seen with little value. Greek, Greek um, philosopher Cicero likened women to slaves, dogs, horses, and donkeys, possessions to be used and cast away if you wanted Plato taught if a man is cowardly, then his punishment will be to be reincarnated as a woman. Now, when I was a kid, I was taught that if you put sugar in your coffee, it would turn you into a woman. Plato taught that, um, that if you were cowardly, it would 
into a world that historically devalued women, Jesus not only elevated women, he elevated women without crushing the order of society. Remember the story in Luke, in John chapter 4, when Jesus is going through Samaria? Now, the Samaritans were a despised race. In a sense, more than the Gentiles, because they were half Jew, half Gentile. But Jesus had to go through Samaria, and he ta- stops to talk with a woman beside a well. And it says that when the disciples came back, it's kind of interesting. It said when they came back, they were amazed that Jesus was talking with, not with a Samaritan, but with a woman. Because it was even more despised, more, more lower class to be a woman than to be even a Samaritan. Jesus not only conversed with women, he healed them. You know that Samaritan woman, by the way, is the first person to whom he revealed he was the Messiah. The first person was a woman. He taught women in a world where Aristotle said that women should not be taught. He not only taught women, they were some of his closest followers. We know, I shouldn't say that. We assume that there were probably some men who financed Jesus' ministry. We are told explicitly that women financed his ministry. Many people don't realize today that it was Christian women who led the first wave feminist movement at the turn of the 20th century. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it changes the way the world sees and values women. I could go on to share with you some detail about how Jesus changed the way people valued children. When Jesus came into the world, children were not valued as well. But wherever Jesus has gone, he's changed that. In 18th century China, one historian said several babies a night were exposed in streets and drowned in water like puppies. But what changed China? Christian missionaries that went in and shared Jesus. By the way, pagan, popular secular people will call missionaries colonialists or imposing their values on others, ethnocentric. The good news of Jesus saved untold millions of Chinese people because of Christianity. Consider slavery. I think too often people forget that for, human hist- for all of human history, slavery was the norm, not the exception. We are living in the exceptional time, not the normal time of history. What changed that? What brought an end to 18th century slavery was the good news of Jesus Christ. That's why we admire William Wilberforce, for instance. If you have a chance to see the movie... Um, Amazing Grace, I would encourage you to. Wilberforce, at the end of the um, 18th century, beginning of the 19th century, was a British parliamentarian. Once he became a Christian, he devoted the rest of his life to ending the international slave trade. That cost him his life. Literally, it shortened his life. It cost him his health, but it also cost him the chance to become prime minister because they believed that he could have become prime minister. He was really on, a, on that track except that he taught, he believed, he campaigned for this unpopular thing, the end of the international slave trade. What motivated him? Genesis 127. Everybody's made in the image of God in John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him, whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Everybody matters to God. God doesn't want anybody to perish. Therefore, the slave is our brother. Are equal. In the U.S., it was Christians 
that led the abolitionist movement. I find it interesting that Great Britain never had to, never had to fight a bloody civil war to end slavery. It was ended by the influence of Wilberforce and other Christians without a war. I'm not ashamed of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the power that brings salvation wherever it is believed and applied. Who else would have changed those values of human life? Popular culture? No. Secular science? No. Secular science doesn't have a value in human life above other life. Philosophy? Nietzsche thought the Christian concept of equality of the souls before God was crazy. What made a difference was Jesus who said people matter to God. In a world that said some people are more important than others, Jesus said don't show favoritism. Jesus would tell stories where he would say, now go into the streets, into the highways and byways and bring into my house the poor and the lame and the weak and the blind because everybody matters. One professor has said, it's really Jesus who brought that notion of dignity and worth of every human being from little Israel to the much greater world. See, the Old Testament taught it, but it took Jesus to spread it to the entire world. It took the resurrected Christ. Um, and this is why our, we are motivated to treat people with dignity today as well. When you see people, how do you see people? When you see people you disagree with, people that you are unlike, how do you tend to view them? I love C.S. Lewis' observation. He said, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit so our charity must be real, our love costly. He says, next to the blessed sacrament itself, next to communion itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Remember that the next time you're in traffic and have that guy that you want to communicate with. The next time you have an angry email, you're ready to send somebody because you've been tempted to kind of dehumanize them in your mind. Remember that the next time you yell at an umpire. And remember, umpires are probably not made in the image of God. And we're not quite sure if they're human or not. So it's okay to <laughs> criticize them. <laughs> no. I'm confident of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the good news of Jesus that changes the way, that people, the way people see and treat each other. I'm also confident in the good news of Jesus because it brings salvation to education. Education for all education that works. The Encyclopedia Britannica says this, the Christian church created the basis of Western systems of education. That's not some right-wing preacher. It's the, it's the Encyclopedia Britannica that says Christianity is credited with Western education. See, in most of world history, the priority for children was not education, it was work. They had farms, these families that had children, the, part of the reason they have children is so they, as soon as they're big enough, they can work the farm. doesn't really matter how well you can quote Plato if you're hungry. So if, if you were 
elite, if you were among the rich, you would be educated. But most of us here today were not, would not be educated if not for Jesus Christ and the good news of the gospel. I remember in Greek class learning, we get the word school from a Greek word, basically it's a transliteration. You know what the word school means in Greek? It means leisure. I remember how cruel. What kind of stupid person would think you study Greek in leisure? You know, oh, this is my leisure time. Let's go study Greek. Now, maybe some of you would, but normal people don't do that. Why was, it, why was school equal leisure? Because only people rich enough to have leisure time could go to school. Jesus changed all that. Jesus came into the world. And you remember his, his, one of his last commands to his, his followers, go into all the worlds and make learners. That's what the word disciple means. Make disciples of all ethnic groups. Go into all the world and you spread education to the rich and the poor, to the people of different races, different sexes. William Ramsey noted that the aim of early Christianity was universal education, not just confined to the rich as among the Greeks and the Romans. Many believe that it was Christians who first educated both boys and girls. Fourth century uh, church leader St. Augustine noted that Christian schools were so effectively educating both boys and girls that Christian women were often better inform informed than pagan male philosophers. Isn't that good? Dr. Uh, D.J. Douglas general editor of the uh, New International Dictionary on the Christian Church, said from its beginning, Christianity is par excellence a teaching religion. And the story of its growth is largely an educational one. As Christianity spreads, patterns for more formal education develop. And I, I know some of you are in school right now thinking, I don't know that that's quite such a blessing. I really wish that I could just go and do something else other than school, but really it is a blessing. That's why the first universities in the Middle Ages, in the late Middle Ages, were started for the very purpose of teaching the Bible or teaching to understand about God in His creation. Oxford was started in 1167, one of the first universities. You know what its motto was? The light of the world. The Lord is my light. Why? Because the founders of Oxford understood that God has created the world and he continues to create through us. And as we come to know him through his word and through his world, that, we, that he continues to radiate his presence throughout life. And therefore, Oxford was started to educate people in Jesus Christ. The Lord is my light. That's why John Witherspoon, president of Princeton, said, Cursed be all learning that is contrary to the cross of Jesus Christ. You say, man, that sounds really radical. Cursed be all learning. Hey, that's just kind of a religious approach. Okay, it's also reality. Proverbs 1, 7, 8 makes it really clear, right? What is the beginning of knowledge? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You take away, the, you try to divorce a proper attitude toward God from religion and you kill, I mean, from education and you kill education. You see the results that we're getting today. 
That is why Christians have founded 10 times more universities than every other religion combined. Do you know why we can even read the classics, Aristotle and Plato today? I think it's kind of fun that it was Christians who preserved those for us. When the barbarians were taking over Rome at the fall of the Roman Empire, they were going around destroying the classics. But it was Irish monks that saved, that preserved all of this stuff and then started teaching it in their, um, in their schools. Not just the Bible, but history and philosophy and legal theory and science and literature. And then they labored to make copies of these books for future generations. We know Plato and Aristotle in the classics today because of Christianity. I am not ashamed. I'm, I'm confident in the power of Jesus Christ to bring salvation wherever he touches the people who believe. Why do we have the printing press? Can you imagine education without books? Gutenberg invented the printing press because he wanted people to read the Bible. Modern education was motivated by Jesus. Christian Comenius was called the father of modern education. Two truths drove him to educate everybody. First of all, Genesis 1.27, everybody is made in the image of God. Second, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, everybody needs to know the Lord. I could go on with many other things, but let's just say in the United States we educate the value of education is because of Christianity. One historian writes that from 1620 to 1837, virtually all education in America was private and Christian, and I would add effective. Educational historian Lawrence Kremens examined literacy rates in the early colonies. He said at a time when the estimated literacy in England ran from 48% in rural areas to 74% in towns, adult literacy in American colonies ran from 70% in rural areas to nearly 100% in towns. John Quincy Adams said that by the early 1800s, only four people out of a thousand were illiterate in America. What a sad contrast with today, where in America, 35 million Americans cannot perform the simplest literacy activities. You want prison reform? 75% of state prison inmates are classified as low literate. Literacy rates are worse among the poor. You care about the poor? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Is it mere coincidence that illiteracy rates were basically zero at the, in the United States at the end, on the heels of the great awakening, the great spiritual awakening that motivated people to educate in the Bible and Jesus Christ for the sake of knowing God. And yet today, when we have tried to divorce education from God, illiteracy rates skyrocket. You reap what you sow. Either the Bible's true or it's not. And I think it's true that the beginning of wisdom, the beginning of knowledge, is a proper understanding of the Lord. If Christianity had not started this movement for education, you say, wouldn't somebody else have? Romans and Greeks didn't. Islam wouldn't. Muslims still don't value everybody the same. 
Hinduism, the heart of Hinduism, the caste system, atheism. Atheists believe human beings are mere insects and ants. That's a quote of an atheist. Kipling called, called human beings man born of woman as small potatoes. Is that going to motivate you to educate all? But Jesus came into the world and said, go and make learners of all ethnic groups. I've come into this world to preach the good news to the poor and to release captives and to set free the oppressed. That is why, by the way, that the first colleges to educate slaves, freed slaves, were started by Christians. Did you know that? Freedmen's Aid Society was a Christian organization that started schools like Howard University and Berea College and Fish University. When you hear of historically black colleges and universities, would you remember they were started by Christians motivated by the good news of Jesus Christ? Gladys West was one scholar who has changed the world, educated at a historically black university. She pioneered work in developing the global positioning system, satellite system. Gladys West writes, I don't ever remember a time where Jesus and his church were not part of my life. She said she loves mathematics because it is the language of God, the language that God has given us to develop the mind and improve the world. Makes me feel guilty because I wish I could do mathematics, quite frankly. But it's true. Somebody has said every time you see a school, a college, a university, you can thank Jesus who said go into all the worlds and make disciples of all ethnic groups. I'm not ashamed. I'm confident in the good news of Jesus Christ to bring salvation when everybody believes. By the way, I'm going to talk more about this in my in a devotion this week that I, I recorded last night, it also creates not just education for all, but education that works. If all you do is educate people who are not moral, you just create smarter criminals. Educate people whose lives are changed by Christ, you get people who change the world for good. I'm confident in the good news of Jesus Christ because Jesus rose from the dead. We enjoy the benefits of modern science. It is no exaggeration to say that. What is the basis of modern science? It's places in the Bible like Psalm 19, 1 and 2. The heavens declare the glory of God. The expanse proclaims the work of His hands. Day after day, they pour, th pour forth speech. Night after night, they communicate knowledge. Alfred North Whitehead has said Christianity is the mother of science because of the medieval assistance on the rationality of God. Johannes Kepler the father of modern astronomy, said science is basically to think God's thoughts after him. The foundation of modern science is the belief that there is a God who created the world, who is rational, who logically, rationally communicates himself to us. It is Romans 1, 12, uh, verse 19. What can be known about God is evident among them because God has shown it to them. How? His invisible attributes, His eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, clearly seen. It is understandable by us. How? Since the creation of the world, being understood through what has been made. That is the basis of modern science. You don't get that from the Greeks and the Romans that believed the gods were capricious and irrational. You don't get that from the 
Hindus or the Buddhists who believe the world, the material world is not real. You don't get that from Islam that believes in fatalism. You get that from Christianity. Can you imagine the world without Sir Isaac Newton? What motivated him? He said, I have, I have a foundational belief in the Bible as the Word of God. I study the Bible daily. He believed that knowing God required two things, knowing God's Word and knowing God's world. According to the Newton Project, Newton's religion and science were tied together by the belief in absolute truth. Newton used testable hypotheses to find truth in nature and believed that his religious writings revealed the truth about God. Fear the Lord. It's the beginning of knowledge. Many have compiled a list of scientists from various branches who are Christians, from a Christian worldview that started various branches of science. Lister, Pasteur, Newton, Kepler, Boyle, Fleming, Faraday, uh, Pascal, Ramsey, just to list a few. And the thing is, it is a Christian perspective towards science that makes it science that's usable. Robert Boyle, a Christian who's credited with Boyle's Law, once listed five biblical attitudes towards scientific study that are necessary for effective results. Five attitudes, biblical attitudes. One, a sense of awe for God and His world. God's the designer, we know Him through the world. Second, humility. A good scientist understands his limits. Number three, open-handedness. In other words, peer review. We recognize biblically that we're fallen creatures and therefore we need accountability. We can all be prejudiced. Number four, rigor. God's world is finely tuned, therefore scientific study must be precise and rigorous. And number five, blessing. The purpose of the study of science is to benefit those who are made in the image of God. Remove biblical attitudes toward the scientific study and what you get. You don't get humility, you get pride. You get the Tower of Babel. You get idolatry where science becomes an idol under, unto itself, where science becomes a way for us to say we don't need God. We are bigger than God. We are independent from God. As a result of that, remove the seeking of God's truth from science. You kill ethics, you, and it becomes, science becomes dangerous. Because science can tell us what is, it cannot tell us what ought. Science can tell us how to castrate a 12-year-old boy. It can't tell us if we should. It can tell us how to deal with the atom. It can't tell us what we should do with the atom. That requires the fear of the Lord, biblical wisdom, humility. Remove the lordship of Jesus Christ, the study of science. From the study of science, you remove rigor and blessing to people. And science becomes about power and manipulation. I'll never forget reading what Francis Schaeffer predicted back in the 60s as he saw increasingly the study of science being removed from the respect of God, the pursuit of God. He says, to the degree that continues, eventually we'll watch increasingly how science becomes an agent for manipulation of people. We've seen that in spades recently, haven't we? People claiming, you got to believe me, you got to believe the science, and they're lying to you. 
because they want you to behave in a certain way. Haven't we seen that? In the, and I say this carefully with some of the climate alarmists who keep telling you the world's going to end in five years. The world's going to end in 15. We're going to have these catastrophic things if you don't change to live the way that we want you to live. And science becomes an agent for manipulation and power if it's not, first of all, ultimately a pursuit of humility to know God and to bless people. It is not an accident that leading modern scientists have been Bible-believing people. John Lennox, Oxford mathematician, notes that over 65% of Nobel Prize laureates have identified themselves as Christian. Another 20% are Jewish, which means 85% of Nobel Prize laureates in science have a biblical worldview, Judeo-Christian. Rodney Stark, who is not a Christian, says that 52 active scientists who have made the most significant contribution during the scientific revolution, of the 52, only one was an atheist. I'm so confident in the good news of Jesus Christ every time I experience the blessings of modern science. Science is not in conflict with God or the Bible. Even Francis Collins recently has said that. It works hand in hand. That leads us to a, another application. That is that we ought to be confident in the power of Jesus Christ, the good news, because he civilizes uncivilized people. Jesus came into a world and he said, love your neighbor as yourself. Will Durant, the historian, not a Christian, points out that when Jesus was born, people were lewd, licentious, and hostile. The moral degradation Disintegration had begun with the Roman conquest of Greece and it culminated under Nero. Thereafter, Roman morals improved. What happened about the time of Nero? That's about the time, it was Nero that ordered the execution of the Apostle Paul. That's when Christianity was beginning to spread through Rome. Little Christian communities, according to Will Durant, were troubling the pleasure-mad world with their piety and decency. Does that sound like today? We live in a pleasure-mad world, and we are troubling the pleasure-mad world with morality for God. Before Jesus was born, people ran away from the sick. Historians say there were no charitable efforts when Jesus was born. When Roman Polybius reported that in Rome, nobody gives away anything to anyone if he can help it. Historian Rodney Stark, again, said, sociologist, says that in the two great um, episodes of plagues in the second and third century, a third of the Roman population was killed and Roman authorities did nothing to stop the spread. Christians, on the other hand, nursed the sick even though some died doing so. What motivates people to help the sick and the dying even at the risk of their own lives? It is people who believe in a, that something matters more than the lower story. They believe in Jesus Christ and His good news and salvation and serving because Jesus came as one to serve, not to be served. Everywhere the good news of Jesus has spread, cruel cultures have been transformed. We don't just see that in Rome. We see that with the Goths and the Saxons and the Franks. I'd love to tell you stories about the Vikings. I'll tell you a story about Mary Slosser, Slesser, a Scottish woman who believed God was calling her to Nigeria in 1876. She settled in a village called Calabar. 
A place where there were four million cannibals, so hostile that even government soldiers were afraid to confront them, to go to their territory. They worshipped sexual fetishes. They were so superstitious, they believed that if twins were born, it must be a demonic activity. So the twins were killed and the mother banished to die of starvation or be killed by beasts. Half the population were slaves. So when a slave owner died, 50 slaves were eaten, 25 more were beheaded. Unmarried women were treated like cattle and children about the same. Mary Slusser saw this and the love of Christ called her to snatch up these twins that were abandoned, to care for these women and to take them in for herself. The people assumed that she was going to die because she had taken in these demons and when she didn't, she gained credibility. Her winsomeness and boldness brought her acceptance in the community. Eventually, she taught the people about Christ and God began to change hearts. Chiefs from neighboring villages would come and listen to her and they would give their lives to Christ and then they would take Christ to their tribes and entire tribes then would be converted to Christ and slowly their evil behavior changed. I love that story, how she was constantly, how these cannibalistic tribes were constantly going to war with each other and she had gained so much credibility when she would hear of this, she would run through the jungle in bare feet, as dangerous as that was, find the conflict, go to the middle of the conflict and throw out her arms and say, stop. And they'd stop. These are people that the government soldiers were afraid to confront. But from the influence of this one bold Christian woman, thousands of cannibals surrendered to Jesus Christ and abandoned their former ways. Without the good news of Jesus Christ, there is no power to bring salvation to the cannibals of Calabar. I am so confident in the power of the gospel. Do you think we need the civilizing power of the gospel in our generation today? You think our world needs the good news of Jesus? You think DC needs the good news of Jesus? I think Yankee Stadium does. That that's you can look at hospitals. Dr. Paul Myers says that hospitals were virtually invented by Christian churches. If I had time, I could go into details about uh, charitable organizations. The Red Cross, Salvation Army, started by people because of Jesus. Uh, William Booth, who started Salvation Army, said his basic concern was for the personal salvation, not just to do good to people, not just to have well-fed, well-clothed people who are headed for death and eternity separated from God, but people who knew Jesus Christ. Biblical truth has driven caring for the needy throughout time. Um, prison fellowship I could talk about today. Millions of people would not be receiving compassionate care if not for the good news of Jesus Christ. The Greeks didn't do it. Atheism wouldn't compel it. Survival of the fittest. Nope. Historian to be... E.H. Lecky is a skeptic, and yet he concluded the character of Jesus has not only been the highest pattern of virtue, but the longest incentive in its practice, has exerted so deep an influence that it may truly be said that the simple record of three short years of active life has done more to regenerate and to soften mankind 
than all the disquisitions of philosophers and all the exhortations of moralists. Even those who aren't Christians admit the impulse of Christianity has civilized, uncivilized people because Jesus brings salvation and says, greater love is no one than this than he would lay down his life for a friend. Os Guinness put it well when he said, if Jesus had never lived and died and risen from the dead, there would be no St. Augustine, no Wilberforce, no Mother Teresa, no St. Francis of Assisi. The world would have been a very cruel and heartless place. And by the way, there would be no you and me who are called to change the world in our day with confidence in the good news of Jesus Christ. We have so much work to do. Elton Trueblood called our generation a cut flower generation. You know what cut flower is? It, at first it has the bloom, it looks beautiful, but it's been cut off, disconnected from what gives it life. So slowly it discolors, slowly the petals fall off. Now people who are blind spiritually don't recognize that. They won't identify that it's being cut off from Christ that is causing the depravity in our world today. But we know better because we know Scripture and history. And so we know our calling is to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we have ministries like Celebrate Recovery and Passion for Community. That's why we teach children. That's why we have Camp Kids Zone every summer for needy kids. That's why we start churches to spread the good news of Jesus throughout the world. That's why you give your offerings. That's why you serve. That's why we call you to share Jesus boldly every week. If you really had the confidence, if we really had the confidence in the good news of Jesus that he deserves, how different would our lives be? How much more bright would our light shine? God calls us today. Heavenly Father, help us. Help us to have the confidence in you that you deserve. In a generation where there's increasing evidence of what happens when people get cut off from you, may we not be intimidated. May we not believe the lies. But may we be more confident than ever and say with the Apostle Paul, we are not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We believe that you are the only hope for salvation if people would just believe. Lord, do your will in our lives right now is my prayer through Christ. Amen.